This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Coming up top of the hour, we'll talk about uh, a big evening tonight on Rogers Monday Night Hockey. It is the uh, Florida Panthers facing off against the Ottawa Senators, the Montreal Canadiens, and the Buffalo Sabres. Uh, a pair of big ones there. Also, Joe Smith coming up. We'll talk about the Minnesota Wild and spend a few minutes talking about uh, John Cooper and the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, in the meantime, very much looking forward to talking to my next guest. He is a Stanley Cup champion. Uh, a noted hockey player, someone who was involved in one of the biggest events the game has ever seen. Uh, he is also a musician. He is also an author. And he is also a pro wrestler. He is Darren McCarty, and he joins me now. Darren, thanks so much for doing this. How are you? Wow, you use a pro wrestling term uh, to the extent. I just, I think I would say I find myself uh, in situations inside of a wrestling ring that I shouldn't be there. And, uh, of course, the result happens. Uh, what we're alluding to is anybody who follows Impact Wrestling, and I know it's played on TSN, they just had their uh, sacrifice pay-per-view um, in Windsor, Ontario, which I'm from Leamington, but it's yep. Essex County. Like to consider the Essex County Fight Club, all the all the tough guys in hockey that come out of the come out of our area, including one of the Maple Leafs' uh, best uh, tough guys in the day, Ty Domi. So, uh, little bit of it yep. known that um, I guess it's a bucket list item now that I get to mark off. But uh, Bully Ray, formerly awesome. Bubba Ray Dudley, put me through a table yeah. the other night. But but I would do it again because uh, uh, Tommy Dreamer's my guy. Always has been. Well, listen, I'm I'm buddies with Scott Demore, and so Scotty was sending me clips on Saturday when I was doing Hockey Night in Canada. He's a good old good old Windsor boy, as uh, as you know. And I was, you know, I was, I I, uh, I I was thinking back because, you know, I was watching uh, Bully Ray put you through the table, and I was thinking back. Um, I'm good friends with Trish Stratus. I've known Trish for forever, and I remember when. He put her through a table on one of the early, one of her early appearances on Raw, and she always felt that like that was her initiation. She's like, "Yeah, you know what? I'm gonna take this bump. Um, it's gonna be a tough one. I'm gonna take it. Like this is gonna be part of my initiation." Is that kind of the way that you felt for this one? Like, you know what? You talk about checking boxes off. Did it kind of feel like I know you've done indies and stuff, but it, did it kind of feel like an initiation for you, Darren? Well, well, is it not the greatest? Like, I, the biggest thing to anything else, where where um, I couldn't say no, is how many people, just like Claude Lemieux, right? You mentioned March 26, 1997. We just had the 26th yeah. year anniversary yeah. yesterday. I got my hands on the biggest villain, right, in hockey history and Claude <laughs> Lemieux. So Bully Ray Dudley is the same thing in wrestling. I don't care what it is. The fact that if it's yeah. like initiation, like I couldn't think of a better initiation. What, if Stone Cold, if I got, that'll be my next get stunned by Stone Cold Steve Austin. Stunned. Right, but Pat, Pat McAfee's it's, already uh, done that. So, so um, <laughs> yes, I think to your, I think to your point, it's, it's an, like, as I look back and, and people ask me, like, well, what was it like? And I said, well, it was better than I thought until the adrenaline wore off in the middle of my sleep and I could not extend my <laughs> left arm because my elbow was so swollen up. But, Thank that led yeah. to a different conversation. Thank God that thank God that I'm I'm well medicated with the Darren McCarty brand. So That's it was awesome. awesome. Uh, yeah, alongside Darren, coming 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 to party or whatever. I think you nailed it. it it uh, it it looked like a lot of fun, man, and it, and, it made, and it made for great television. Uh, you mentioned the anniversary of uh, of Fight Night at the Joe, and you know one of the points that I've been making about that event and there have been books that have been written about it there have been documentaries made about it you know a lot of you know hockey media time has been used up talking about that one you know did it help launch um, the Detroit Red Wings into their dynasty how much of a punctuation mark did it put um, on the Colorado Avalanche um, I kind of look at that that night and I look at the feud between the Avalanche and the Red Wings, and like there are individuals that really don't like each other that'll fight every now and then. Um, but the thing that always that I look back on still to this day, I don't know the last. It might be the last time that we saw two teams that really hated each other, like person to person, skater to skater, goalie to goalie. 
where everybody couldn't stand being in the same environment as the other. What did it feel? I want to get to Lemieux in a sec, but what did it feel like to be part of that, Darren? Because that's what it looked like to me. Like, everybody hates everybody here. You absolutely nailed it, and it was personal. And not just – it was from the team through the fan base to everything else. This was absolutely personal, right? And and the greatness of it too, Jeff, is because of the greatness of the talent. And we were the top echelon talented teams, Right, they had the Sack and Forsbergs. We had the Eisenmans and uh, the Federovs and stuff. So, what made it so intriguing was this is at the highest of high levels. You have this hatred, right? And the difference yeah. I think between 26 years ago and today is that all the guys that play together coming up have uh, the best players have played internationally and played anything else. The only thing that I can always say, looking back is it reminds me so much of when we do history in the medieval times. If you went back 500 years, right, to medieval Europe, and you had the king of one country and Joe Sackick and the king of the other, Steve Eiserman, those kings never had to come off on their throne because as much as the hatred to the peasants, and that's the rest of us, that we hated each other, and even the coaches and stuff like this, but the Steve Eisermans and the Joe Sackicks were always left alone and respected on each part. Now, now, whatever it was, and, and when you look back and you see how it is, it's like, yeah, you don't have that. And I think a lot of it today is because all the top talented guys in the world have either played against each other or with each other growing up because hockey's a year-round, year-round thing. When we grew up, we played baseball in the summer. We did other things, so we weren't playing all these summer camps, and we didn't get to know each other and like each other as much, right? So you add hatred, and you and – I don't know. I'm, I'll be 51 on on Saturday. Um, I was born in 1972, and it's just sort of like the way that we were brought up and that old men, that you know mentality of your community. And I think people in especially the Toronto area, you know, with the MTHL growing up and stuff like this, man. If you're a Wexford Raider, you hated the Don Mills Flyers, and you hate you know what I'm saying. It was. Oh, More I like I that, do. and I think oh, we've I lost that. We've we've lost that. Yeah, there's no like yeah. that true hatred because you know this person. So even like if you know in like in the like we were talking about wrestling earlier, right? There's a there's a character on the ice and there's something off the ice, but you get to know this about people more so nowadays because things have changed. So mm. yes, it was the greatest rivalry because we made each other so much better. And at the end of the day, we ended up with three cups, and they ended up with two cups. And I, from my leaning to Ontario math, that means we won. <laughs> I love it. Alongside Darren McCarty, um, former Stanley Cup champion, author, musician, uh, pro wrestler, and uh, guest here on the Jeff Merrick Show. Um, at what point does that, and maybe the answer is it hasn't, and it still burns the same, but uh, at what point does that hatred start to, to disappear? Or does it ever disappear? Or is there still a part in the back of your brain where every time you see that logo or one of those players, ugh, something happens inside you? Does it ever go away? If it does go away, at what point? Like, how long does it take to, to get out of your system? To answer that question, let me take you back up off of the last about why. Because there was no respect, right? So the respect off the ice, and if you've seen ESPN Unrivaled 25th anniversary where Claude and I yep. sat down, is the respect of me meeting Claude Lemieux. Like, for me, I never... We did that TSN interview with Michael Landsberg. That's the first time I ever sat down face-to-face. And I was in... in, a, yeah. in The day after St. Patty's Day, when I'm in the throes of my alcoholism, so I'm not in the right place. Like, I'm, I have no time for it. But what it is, is I call it like I see it. So he's earned that respect, even to the fact that we did the documentary... Be, or the unrivaled, mm-hmm. or, which I think is, is the greatest because you get both sides of the story. Usually you only get one side of the story, but they had their side, we had our side, and I think it's the respect, at least for me, to Claude personally as a human being that I've gotten to know. But it took 10 years, 8 years, you know, something to develop mm-hmm. so over time. No, I, I, I'm grateful for that avalanche. I want to beat them and stuff like this, but I was happy for Joe Sackett because those Avalanche teams made my legacy, but also, too, they made we wouldn't be Stanley Cup champions. How many times growing up do you see the, yeah. the, the junior hockey teams or whatever that hate each other, but they can't make the playoffs? 
who cares about that? When you have the highest, highest, and the best of the best, and what if I play? What do I play with twelve Hall of Famers? You know, like come on, man. And, oh, yeah. and how many do they have on their team? So I think to answer your question, it's because the respect has been brought into the element, like I said, that Steve Eisenman and Joe Sackick had for each other, and we, I, we had for Joe, and their team had for Stevie. But now it's uh, intertwined. I tell, I tell you, the biggest thing is, is. Like Claude and I, so we have a personal relationship, but I don't know Patrick Waugh and, and, you know, all this, but from the documentary, I gained a lot more respect for him as a human being because it's the first time I really seen him let his guard down and, you know, mm-hmm. stay the way it is, you know? And, and I think that as we get older and kids get older, and a lot of us are becoming grandparents and stuff like this, um, you look and see where does it place in 2023 and, and where's the lesson from it to pass down. So... I'm just grateful to be a cog in the wheel and to be a part of part of the greatest rivalry that, uh, in hockey and the greatest rivalry in sports from 96 to 2002. And yesterday was the 26th anniversary. Um, I, I know that there are, for anyone who was involved in that, uh, probably mental scars that will stay forever. Uh, I'm curious about physical scars. Like, is there anything that you have, like, that's a little bit askew on your body that you look at and you say, oh, yeah, that's from Fight Night at the Joe some 26 years ago. No, later. not. Is there anything? Not me. Not me, but Claude's got a welt on his head from when I need him, which you yeah. cannot do, and I don't condone that. But you know what? Johnny Rambo in the Rambo series said he drew first blood. So so I he the, the rules were out, and he's got a welt on his head, a bump on his head to this day to still remind him. You know what I'm saying? So... To me, I, hey, yeah. all I say is I, I'm a huge believer in karma, and that that's the greatest uh, God shot karma, whatever it is, coming back to and and the fact I stayed in the game and scored the overtime winner, you'll never see that again. I mean, I did that today. How, how did you, that, I get suspended half the year. <laughs> that's the thing that I think a lot of us, you know, looking back on now, it's like we've all seen the fight. We've all seen you on Lemieux. We've all seen the knee. How you were able to finish the game, Darren, I think a lot of newer fans would look back on that and say, how was that possible, Darren McCarty? Because they can't understand how bad of that Claude Lemieux is the most hated person by everybody in, in the league other than his teammates. And still then, at the time, I think some of them hated him. Like, Brian, the bet, it was the perfect storm. When I threw that knee, if you watch the video that ESPN has, Dvorsky looks away. He never saw it. Even though he was told, he went by, I didn't see it. Right? And I think it was one of these things is that, is that Brian Burke, who is the disciplinary, right, said the refs, or the, yep. the, the refs, the league, then the players will discipline themselves. It got to the last line of defense, and it was sort of like it was just a perfect storm. And here's the thing. How many, how many times? And, and this is what last year's Super Bowl between Philadelphia and Kansas City reminded me of. The hype to the game, and it pays off. Because you can't write a better script, oh, yeah. and I know I'm biased because I'm the star, but for March 26, 97, with all the goals, 11 goals, eight fights, overtime, all the drama to what it meant and what it, and what it uh, sprang, mm-hmm. at least for our legacy. We were talking about it earlier today. Because what would have happened if we didn't win the Cup? That year is that the league, the people in the, around the league would have said, okay, well, Detroit's not this European soft team that they will stick up for themselves. But it wouldn't have made as big of a difference that it did being the moment that it did. Um, I, I, I want to close with one more on this one. And I, I, I'm, I, I'm legitimately curious about uh, a, a lot of went on, what, what went on there. But I'm, I'm, I'm more curious about the enduring legacy. Okay, I remember talking to Neil Smith once, and he was a general manager when the New York Rangers won the Stanley Cup in 1994. And he says, you know, when he when he still like walks down any street in Manhattan, he'll have Rangers fans coming up to him still and just saying, thank you. Thank you so much for that win, ending the drought, all of it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, when you walk down the streets in Detroit or you're at the new rink or you're at wherever, uh, when you're in Detroit, do you still get people coming up to you to talk about that night and to talk about those cups and to talk about that team? 
every day, all day, every day, and I'm the perfect person to carry this because I love it. I know where I was. I want to know where you were. And here's the beauty that I realized because one of the things I also do is travel around. I do the slaps, Darren McCarty Slaps the Comedy Tour where I tell, you know, different stories and, you know, uh, yeah. stuff like this. Yeah. But I realized, right, it's cyclical. So now all the 5- and 10-year-olds are 30, 35, 40. Right, they they got kids, right? They so so the meaning of March 26th that they experienced it, but they were younger. Now the whole thing about in life and sports, it means that, like the whole picture, the culture, and everything. What it means is deeper. Even to the fact now it blows me away when I got like six, seven, eight year olds coming up talking to me about it who weren't around. But then you look at the way that it's carried through the family. I don't even have to tell anybody in. In Maple Leaf land about that because the Maple Leaf, I grew up in Leamington and just because I'm a Red Wings fan doesn't matter. It's the love of, of the Leafs and if you're a Canadiens fan, we know what passion is and that's the whole thing is is like hockey town and stuff like this. I joke, but I'm the mayor of hockey town. If I'm in that building, I'm signing autographs, I'm talking to people, taking pictures, but I love doing it. That's who I am. Right? Like, And, and I, I think it. that individual individually everybody's different don't compare me to everybody else and be prepared that everybody's not going to treat you the way that i'm going to treat you but i am and i'm grateful you know it's part of i i realized that i was given this great honor and like you said the legacy to carry around because because i love it and i love to share it and what it means to everybody and and i love to know either where they were you know ask questions and stuff so i will I, i every day like, to your point, I can never get it enough. I love it. Um, Darren, it's always a delight and catching up with you. Uh, it's been too long. Go ahead, sorry. No, I was just going to say, and then next thing you know, Bully, bully Race put you through a table. Boom. There you go. <laughs> so, so there are what a life, man. Bro. What a life. <laughs> there are. Yeah, Thanks, Darren. You be well. Take care of yourself. Thank you, Jeff. Talk yep. to you soon. There he is, Darren McCarty. And by the way, I want to plug as well. He'll be a six-man tag with uh, against Bubba Ray on April the 6th on Impact Wrestling. He once said something to me so profound. This is after he wrote his book about his uh, issues with, uh, with addiction. I remember asking McCarty, when did you hit rock bottom? And he stopped me and he said, I want you to understand something. There's no such thing as rock bottom. You can always get lower. You can always get worse. But all you can do as a person is decide to stop digging. And one day I decided to stop digging. Hour two of the Merrick Show coming up next. Covering the Raptors in depth like no one else. The Raptor Show with Will Lou. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Coming up in a few moments, Cassie Campbell-Pascal from uh, the NHL on Sportsnet from Rogers Monday Night Hockey. Someone who should be in the Hockey Hall of Fame. That's probably for a different conversation. But nonetheless, I've always wanted to put that out, and I always continue to do. Um, it's a big couple of games tonight, so Montreal can be eliminated if they lose to the Buffalo Sabres in any fashion. Yes, their tragic number is at one. And the Florida Panthers, again, they don't technically have to win this game, but they have to win this game. Against the uh, the Ottawa Senators uh, tonight, it is Kachuk versus Kachuk uh, on Rogers Monday Night Hockey, hosted by the great David Amber. Uh, in the meantime, right around this time, normally, although sometimes we uh, we gray it a little bit, um, we try to take care of the uh, random player of the day. And if you want to take part in this, players go through your mind, send them in, and we'll do the bios here. Uh, people seem to dig it. Uh, a little bio refresher, learn a couple of things along the way. JM show at sportsnet.ca is the email. Just even if you don't want to send a message, just send the name of a random player that enters your mind. Hey, Maddie Marchese. Yes, sir. As I'm saying this myself, you know whose name is entering my mind? I, I have no idea why. It's, uh, of course, you don't. I'm know. sure it's out there. Question. I'm sure it's out there. Jim Pack. Don't know why. Oh, yeah. This morning I've been thinking about Jim Pack. I have no idea why. <laughs> Pittsburgh Bengals th- defenseman. What to say? Mike's all, no, no idea why. I feel like I had him on a radio show when he was announced that he was taking over and coaching the South Korean team uh, for the Olympics. Yeah. Nice. 
Yeah. yeah, Jim Pack. I don't know. So just it, it's just you know for everyone listening or watching in that spirit, you have someone like Jim Pack's name in your head. Sh- off to the uh, email machine and uh, send it along. JM show at sportsnet.ca. What do we have today, Mr. Uh, producer slash host who interviewed Edge from WWE on the weekend? Yeah, that was fun. Um, we have this one submitted by Jonathan Bedley, the all-time leading hey. scorer of the WHA, Andre Lacroix. Oh, uh, yeah, Andre Lacroix. Five foot eight, 165 pounds. Um, but like ridiculous, like great speed and ridiculous hands. Andre Lacroix. So the the conversation around Lacroix has always been, does he belong in the Hockey Hall of Fame? Now he did play in both the NHL and the WHA. The WHA, uh, as you just point out, Maddie, is where he really distinguished himself. Like led the league in scoring a number of times. You know, put up points everywhere that he went, and he was always on the WHA on a lot of broken teams and teams that moved and teams that didn't do very well. Uh, but Lacroix nonetheless would always put up, you know, century marks pretty much every year. I think he played in all seven WHA seasons as well. I think he was involved in the WHA. I think he was like bell to bell um, all the way through from opening puck drop to, to the close. I think Andre Lacroix was always a part of the WHA. So nicknamed the magician, uh, I mentioned he was five foot eight, about 165 or 170 pounds. He played on this Montreal Junior uh, Junior Canadiens team that had, wait for this one, Jacques Lemaire, Yvon Cornoyer, Serge Savard, and Rogi Vachon. Good luck getting the puck away from those guys. Uh, went to the Peterborough Peets uh, and then the Quebec Aces of the American Hockey League. Um, when the Philadelphia Flyers were granted an expansion team, the Flyers bought that Quebec team, and he became property of the Philadelphia Flyers, scored his first career NHL goal against the Pittsburgh Penguins later on that first season, I think in either January or February, against one of my most favorite interviews ever, and we just did it at uh, Hockey Day in Canada, with against legendary netminder Les Binkley, uh, who is one of the funniest storytellers I've uh, I've ever ever met. Um, he played for the Philadelphia Flyers for three, maybe four seasons, led the team in scoring. Um, but then they drafted this guy and graduated to the big squad. And that's when Andre Lacroix lost his job as the number one center. And Maddie, that player's name was Bobby Clark. So Bobby Clark comes around and next thing you know, Andre Lacroix has, uh, has lost his job. He gets traded to the Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, the WHA starts. He jumps. Uh, interestingly enough, he goes to the Philadelphia Blazers, uh, a team that had former teammate Bernie Perrant and Derek Sanderson uh, on the squad. There are so many stories. One day we can do a WHA Philadelphia Blazers um, segment. There are so many incredible stories of the Philadelphia Blazers. One of my favorite ones is that Blazers team on opening night uh, pre-game flood, and they'd all they'd given all the fans blue pucks as souvenirs that day. Uh, so all the fans had blue pucks in the rink, and as they were doing the pre-game flood, the blade dropped or the blade broke, and it smashed the ice, and they couldn't finish the flood, so the game had to be canceled. And some genius from the Philadelphia Blazers thought it would be a good idea if Derek Sanderson, who I, I want to say was the captain of the Blazers, went out on the ice with a microphone to announce to the fans, did I mention this was in Philadelphia, Maddie? Announce to the fans that the <laughs> inaugural game will not be played that day. What do you think the thousands in attendance, all armed with a blue puck, by the way, started to do when Derek Sanderson made the announcement that there would be no game that night? Uh, the the only thing they could do, which was to throw them on the ice. <laughs> <laughs> At Derek Sanderson, who had to take shelter uh, inside the penalty box. Welcome to the WHA. Um, when the team moved from Philadelphia to Vancouver, he refused to go. He was moved to the New York Golden Blades, who turned into the Jersey Knights and then went to the San Diego Mariners. Great logo. Uh, played with the Houston Arrows and the New England Whalers. Uh, and then when... The WHA, the four WHA teams were absorbed into the NHL. He played 29 games uh, with the then Hartford Whalers and so then subsequently played uh, with the legend Gordie Howe. So that is pretty much everything 
I know about Andre Lacroix outside of the debate, and you can have this one on your own. For me, it's a no, but I understand why some people may think he does deserve it. Does Andre Lacroix deserve to be in the Hockey Hall of Fame because of how he dominated in the WHA? I, my, for me, it's a no. For me, it's no. He was yeah. very good in the WHA, but I mean, it wasn't as if he was elite in the NHL. He went and, and dominated a league. Although you can make the argument too that the NHL, I've always made this. Like if you look at the period in time where the NHL was at its weakest, was the seventies. We can just be honest about it because there was expansion in 67. There was expansion in 1970, expansion in 72, 74. There was a WHA that took players away from the NHL. Like, not that I take all those records that were set or all those performances and kind of throw them in the trash. All I like to keep in mind is for all those things that we saw happen in specifically the early to mid 70s, I think we should take them all with a grain of salt because that was when the NHL was more watered down than it had ever been. And I know people hate when I bring that up, but I'm going to get ready to duck here. That includes all of Bobby Orr's records too. It's not a very popular thing to say in Canada or not a very popular thing to remind people in Canada, by the way. Anyway, uh, thoughts on Andre Lacroix. You have one? Yeah, well, first of all, the numbers are pretty gaudy in the WHA. Like he, d- hey, by the oh, way, he did play the most, the most it, games. <laughs> yeah, most games in WHA history. So he was there from the beginning. He was also the radio yeah. analyst for the Hartford Whalers. Uh, he and Larry Plo split duties doing that. Oh, I love Larry Plo. Oh, oh, such a nice man. Such a nice man. And he was Larry Plo. If I can recall, there was one, like maybe the most, and there were a lot of brawls in the WHA. Larry Plo, I think, would have been involved in that Minnesota Fighting Saints, New England Whalers brawl, which was, and I have not been able to find any video of it. There's audio of it. There's the radio call. I think Larry Plo might have been the first one to get jumped right off the uh, the opening uh, the opening faceoff. Here's how, here's, and Plo was right in the middle of all of it. Here's how bad that brawl was. Jack Carlson who was supposed to be one of the Hansons, but didn't, and that's why Dave Hansen went uh, to Slapshot. Jack Carlson and Nick Fatiu got in a brawl at the penalty box, and I think Jack Carlson actually took off his skate to hit Nick <laughs> Fatiu with. That's how bad that brawl was, man. <laughs> the happy Gilmore? Takes off his skate at the penalty box to hit someone. It's a different time, folks. I know we just talked to Darren McCarty about, you know, uh, what happened in the Joe Louis Arena 26 years ago, but uh, WHA got uh, got pretty spicy too. Um, Matty, who, really quickly, who was it that sent that one in again? Uh, that one was Jonathan Bedley. Jonathan Bedley, thank you. Anytime we get a chance to talk about the WHA, it's always appreciated here on this program. Again, for your chance to send in a, uh, a random hockey player, Uh, Show at sportsnet.ca is the email address. All right, Monday Night Hockey, Rogers Monday Night Hockey. Uh, A couple of big games. Uh, One, we're watching the Montreal Canadiens. Their tragic number is one, so if they lose to Buffalo in any fashion, Montreal is out and officially entering the uh, the Connor Bedard sweepstakes. Um, The Ottawa Senators and the Florida Panthers, it'll be Kachuk versus Kachuk, and although mathematically the Florida Panthers don't have to win this one, When you talk to players, either current or previous, they'll say, yeah, man, the Panthers have lost three games in a row and they're playing the Ottawa Senators and they're chasing the Pittsburgh Penguins. They need to win this one. Uh, For comment on tonight's matchup, you'll watch her on set. She is Cassie Campbell-Pascal from the NHL on Sportsnet and Rogers Monday Night Hockey. Cassie, how are you? I'm excellent, Jeffrey. How's it going? Uh, it's going good. And one of the things that one of the drums that I've been sort of beating today is, um, this matchup is an excellent one. This matchup is intriguing outside of, you know, Kachuk versus Kachuk, which is always interesting. This is in a lot of ways, the game that the Florida Panthers cannot squander. I know technically that's not true, but when you look at, you know, what Pittsburgh did on the weekend, um, how they beat the Washington Capitals, the cushion they have between themselves and the Florida Panthers. 
Um, I look at this one and I say uh, the Florida Panthers cannot lose games like this. But as we know, the Ottawa Senators like to stick it to teams and DJ Smith's team isn't going to quit. How do you look at the Cats and the Sens tonight, Cassie? Well, I, you know, it's funny. I think that it overshadows everything when you're dealing with Florida and Ottawa, the Kachuk brothers, and both of them would love nothing yep. more than, you know, maybe to put a dagger in the other team's playoffs hopes. You know, that's something that they've had a little competition since they have known each other, whether it was in the backyard or now playing in the NHL. So that's always really fun to watch. And I, I feel like all those bubble teams, like I feel like for the last two, three weeks, we've been saying this is a must-win game. It's a must-win game for this team. And, <laughs> you know, I know where I live out west, it's the same for the Flames. Well, this is a must-win. And then all of a sudden they're two points out, four yeah. points out. And, um, and that's what makes this time of year so much fun is that they're all playoff-type games. They're all fun to watch. And, Normally, you probably wouldn't really watch Florida and Ottawa with the exception of the Kentuck brothers in their battle, but tonight's such an important game, you know, maybe more so for Florida than Ottawa, but Ottawa still believes as well. So uh, it should be a fun one. Uh, it should be real good, too. And I, I want you, if, if you can, to, to drill down on, on both of the Kachucks. Now, of course, Matthew Kachuk, part of that, that huge you know, blockbuster trade in the offseason uh, with Huberto and Uyghur going to the Calgary Flames and Matthew Kachuk going to Florida. Uh, Kachuk's look fantastic. Like, the, I mean, no, no surprise. I mean, he's one of the most you know, elite players in the NHL, can play any type of game that you want, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Brady is you know, quickly distinguishing himself as one of the, uh, the best young leaders in the game. You saw him in that game against New Jersey, you know, taking on you know, Miles Wood and um, scoring. He's making plays. He's fighting. Like, all those things that you want your leader to do. When you look at both these two brothers, are they more... For you, Cassie, are they more similar or are they more different than one another? Well, I think the characteristics about the way they go about their business is very much the same. You know, they both just want to win. Um, They're both willing to do whatever it takes to help their team win. You know, I think their styles of play on the ice are a little bit different in the sense that, you know, I think Brady's a better skater overall. I think he's a bit more of a physical presence than Matthew is. Um, I don't think he's he's as cerebral as Matthew is. Like, Matthew is so smart around the net and his ability to get his stick open, and uh, he kind of makes up for his lack of speed, you know, with playing a more hockey IQ game. Um, you know, one yeah. thing about Matthew is that, you know, when I, I remember doing a Florida Panthers game earlier in the season, and I was asking Paul Maurice, you know, I remember the history between Matthew and the Winnipeg Jets and the Mark Shifley hit. He kind of laughed, and... He said, you know what, that aside, Cass, what is impressed me the most about Matthew is his skill around the net and his hands. And I think he's got slightly better hands than, than Brady does, and Brady's more of a power kind of guy. But one thing with Matthew, what he's added to Florida, is, you know, last year, you think about it, a ton of their offense came from off the rush, and they really needed to change that team mindset and get a lot more offense from, you know, the hash marks down and more sustained offensive zone pressure and I think that's what Matthew's brought to them this year. And, you know, of course, they, they lost some big guys too, and Huberto and Uyghur on the back end, and they've had some changes, and I think they've had some struggles because of it, you know, a new coach and everything. But he's really brought that element to Florida where they're finding ways to get more offense from the hash marks in on a regular basis. Yeah, you know, the um, the, the Florida Panthers are an interesting team. Like, I think we all looked at Florida and said, okay, last year they went all in. Like they with Claude Giroux and Ben Chirot, like they went all in on the season, you know, uh, throwing away, you know, draft pick after draft pick and prospect after prospect, you know, trying to make sure that they did whatever it took last season uh, to get deep into the playoffs. They beat the Washington Capitals despite the early scare. Um, but then flamed out against the Tampa Bay Lightning, their, uh, their their state rivals. I think we thought, Cassie, they would take maybe at least, a, maybe just a small step back this season. But I'll be blunt with you. I'm, I'm stunned that they find themselves fighting for their playoff lives so late in March. I knew they'd take a little bit of a step back because last year was... I mean, they were just a, a, a juggernaut franchise. They'd you know put up seven goals, you know, at the at the drop of a hat. Are you surprised as I am that here we are, 
you know, the uh, the 27th of March, and we're talking about a game tonight where the Florida Panthers are trying to battle and are three points back of just getting in a wild card? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think when we watched the, the blockbuster trade go down in the summer, I, I think everyone in the hockey world was thinking, wow, how did this happen? This was great for both teams, you know, both Calgary and both Florida, and yet both find themselves on the outside looking in. And, you know, I I look at guys, you know, Matthew individually hasn't struggled under Paul Maurice. You know, I think him playing under Daryl Sutter last year and excelling like he did, if you can play under a coach like that who tends to be uh, quite hard on players, then I think you can survive under anybody. And, you know, so he hasn't really missed a beat. And, but I think the other way, it, it's been a bit of a struggle for Huberto and Weger to adjust to a new system and a harder system. And um, one, mm-hmm. to a coach that doesn't really cater to individual players, it doesn't matter how much you make, it's about your performance and your work ethic every single day. And, you know, I, I just, I think Florida and Calgary have both surprised me. You know, I, I think for the situation that True Living was in to pull his deal off, you know, I mean, I don't know how much better he could have done. And yet to see those two players that came to Calgary struggle has, has been sort of mind boggling. And mm-hmm. at the same time, you thought Matthew Kachuk would be enough to, to add sort of a little bit of sandpaper and a lot of offense up front. So um, I think it's been a struggle for both teams. And if you can pinpoint one thing, I think both at times have had struggles with their net minders. And I think that's been a big difference. Yeah, that's uh, what do they all say. Uh, if you have a goalie, it's 70% of your team. If you don't, it's 100 um, I know exactly what you're talking about it, and you know it more profoundly and better than I do as a player. Um, Montreal Canadiens and the Buffalo Sabres. Uh, this one on Eastern Pacific tonight. Um, when I look at Montreal specifically, I say to myself, this is the power of honesty. This is the power, and we're seeing this in Philadelphia. We've seen this previous in New York. Um, and by power of honesty, I mean this. There was always the belief that the Montreal Canadiens, you know, powerhouse Habs, couldn't take a step backwards to rebuild because their fans and their media, both English and French, wouldn't stand for it. Like, that's not what Montreal does. Like, this is not a team that moves backwards. It's add and add and playoffs and go deep and all of it. Ghosts of the forum. Um, With Gorton and Hughes and Martin St. Louis behind the bench... I think the one thing that they've really tried to be as honest and transparent about what they're doing here, and I think to a lot of people's surprise, fans are okay with it. Like, I don't know how long they'll be okay with it. That's always the big question. One year, sure. Two years, maybe. Three years, what are you thinking? But do you have a thought on what we're seeing in Montreal where Habs fans get it? Like, they understand, like, where this thing is going and why the decisions are being made by Kent Hughes and Jeff Gordon. Do you have a thought on what Montreal is going through right now? Because there's a you know, pretty good chance that they might be eliminated tonight. Yeah, I think honesty, excitement, you know, you can see some skills for the future. I think that little sprinkle of a Stanley Cup final <laughs> was sure helpful. That was surprising, I think, to a lot of people <laughs> as well. You know, I, I'll yeah. say one name. It's Chantel Machaby. And I, I got to tell you, since she's taken yeah. over the communication side of things, fans have been allowed inside the dressing room. Fans have been allowed to see a more personal side of the players, which wasn't really the case. You know, that was sort of the aura of the Montreal Canadiens. It's our room. And, and you know, you can see our Stanley yeah. Cups on the outside of the room, but you can't come in. And we, we, we don't want to show personalities because we're – we don't want to put them out there to negativity and, and, you know, people to judge them. And, and I think that's one thing they've just done differently this year. You see on their social media, they're having conversations with players and it's fun. And you've seen, you know, photos of guys in the weight room doing their workouts and, you know, in the dressing room, you've just, they've just kind of made it, you know, more fun and young. And I think they've allowed people inside and, and that's kind of opened them up to a little bit less judgment, I think, because people are like, Oh, well, it's, they're the Montreal Canadiens, but they do the same things, you know? And um, so I give her a lot of credit. I really do. And um, she's yep. just made the team a little bit more accessible. And I, I think that's something the the ghosts and the aura of Montreal past that we, we never really got to see. And, and she's kind of opened it up and um, and just made it, you know, a little bit more fun for the fans, I think. And I think that's been pretty important. 
when uh, to to further that point, when Elliot I, when Elliot and I did our, our sit down piece with Jake Allen um, a month and a half ago or whenever that was, I mean a lot of that was driven by Chantel about why this would be a good thing for the Habs, why it's good to give this type of access, why it's good to do, you know, long form specifically with someone um, like Jake Allen. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Chantal's name because she was a, a huge driving force behind that. And I think Habs fans really enjoyed it. And I think, you know, that there was something that, you know, helps bring you closer to the organization. And I'll, I'll tell you what, this is, um, and I know Jeff Gordon's a, a veteran hand and I get that. But when you, the, the one thing that I'm always amazed at is, you know, with this rebuild happening with the Montreal Canadiens, with all due respect to the people that are doing it, they're all inexperienced in their position. Kent mm-hmm. Hughes is a first-time general manager. Martin St. Louis is a first-time NHL coach. Now, they've been around hockey a long time, but in their positions, they're closer to being a rookie than being a veteran. I'm I'm yeah. still amazed that all of this, like the keys to all of this, has been handed to first timers, and so far so good. Well, and I think you look at all of them, and anytime I'm talking to someone about any of those three gentlemen, the first thing you hear out of people's mouths is they're good people, and I think you see that when they address the media. You know, when Jeff Gordon first came in, he's like, "Hey," one of the first things out of his mouth was, "Hey, I can't speak French, but I'm going to learn." Like. They, they're kind of vulnerable. They, they've put themselves out there in a vulnerable way. You know, Martin St. Louis has been really honest about his evaluation of his players and the way he coaches things and how he does video. And, like, he's, they've really yeah. put themselves out there to be vulnerable and to be judged. And I think, generally, that's a good thing. You know, I think that shows a, a great leadership group there where, um, you know, even Ken Hughes, when he, when, when he came in, he, you know, it was just kind of, you know, I'm an agent and like he kind of showed us his weaknesses right off the hop. And yet, you know, he's been doing such a great job. And I think honesty and integrity goes a real long way in this business. And, um, you know, leadership isn't about getting people to follow you. Leadership is about, you know, getting people to believe in themselves. And, and I just truly think those three are great examples of, of how to do just that. If you want to lead, walk behind. If you want to lead, walk behind. Um, fi- final thought on, on one of the teams we'll, we'll see tonight on Rogers Monday Night Hockey. Just mentioned the uh, the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, a, a quick follow-up here. Um, the Buffalo Sabres. I mean, it was looking great at various times this year. We all got caught up in Sabres mania. Could this be the season? You know, they, they break the curse and they break the string and make it into the uh, postseason. Uh, like, that's not going to happen for the Buffalo Sabres, but it's been a fun ride. And much like we see a direction in Montreal, we also do see a direction with the Buffalo Sabres. When I say Buffalo Sabres now, Cassie, March 27th, you know, in 2023, who's the first name that pops to your mind? Or who's the first visual in your head when I say Buffalo Sabres right now? Well, I think the obvious is Tage Thompson. But, you know, I'm sitting here listening to you as you're talking and thinking, okay, what's he going to ask me? And all I can think about is Darlene and Power and Tage Thompson and Alex yeah. Tuck. And I'm thinking, okay, where's he going to go with this question? And, you know, I think they, they missed <laughs> Tuck there when he got injured for those, you know, the couple of weeks there he was gone. It was such a crucial time, and I think they missed his experience. But I, I got to tell yes. you, like, they don't make the playoffs. This group really got some lessons here in these last two or three weeks that I think are going to take them. You know, once they get into the playoff mode, I don't think we're going to see them leave for any time soon. And you know, Darlene, he's become better defensively, but still needs to grow in that area. Same with Power and, um, you know, Tage Thompson offensively, what he's done. And, you know, I, I think through this, and, and I covered Buffalo recently and got a chance to talk to Don Granado, they're learning, like, when games are close, how to play and be a little calmer. You know, when you're down one nothing in a game, you can't just start playing run and gun. you got to continue to play the structure. And those seems like simple things. But when you're a young NHL player who's used to playing offensively and, and, you know, getting the accolades, and then all of a sudden you got to play a little bit more playoff-style hockey, I think the general core of the Buffalo Sabres is still trying to learn that. And I think that's why you've seen some growing pains here. But once they make the playoffs, and I wouldn't be surprised if they do it next year, I think they're going to be there for a while. Yeah, they look uh, they look real good for the future. Cass, I know you got a game to get ready for. Thanks as always for stopping by. We'll be uh, we'll be tuned in tonight for sure. It is Rogers Monday Night Hockey: the Panthers and the Senators, uh, the Habs and the Buffalo Sabers. Pre-game gets underway at six thirty Eastern. Puck drops early at seven. Thanks as always, Cass. 
Yeah, we have a new segment tonight, too, in the pregame show. I won't tell you too much, but it's called the Yandel Watch. So you got to tune in for that, okay? It's the a new yan- segment tonight, the, the yan- Yandel Watch. Yep. The Yandel? The yan- are we, like, talking about, um, uh, like, watches or thing, like, to, things on your wrist no, to tell like time? Watch, or, like, like, things that Yandel's paying watch. attention to? Oh, okay. Yeah. What he's the paying Yandel attention to. Okay, watch. well, uh, so, we'll... The Yandel Watch. Let us know watch. what you think about okay? it, okay? Like all right, I'll text you right away. Thanks, Cass. Okay, see you later. Bye. There she is, Cassie Campbell-Pascal from uh, from the NHL on Sportsnet. Uh, Panthers and Sens, Habs and Sabres tonight on uh, Rogers Monday Night Hockey. Interesting point about the Buffalo Sabres there, too. We're going to make this final point and move on. Joe Smith coming up on the other side. The thing about the Buffalo Sabres, and this is what managers talk about all the time. This is what coaches talk about all the time. This is what makes it difficult when you're a team that's out of it early. Like when you're a team that's out of the playoffs at like Christmas, it's a real grind and there's a lot of empty calorie games and you don't really get the feeling of what an NHL season is like because you're just trying to get through it. You just need to get to the end. You just need to get to the hot towel after a game 82 because there's no game 83 for you. The thing that the Buffalo Sabres will gain this season is they will, all those players, they're all young, most of them, what they'll gain now is what it feels like to be part of a competitive 82 games or as close to a competitive 82 games as possible. Some teams drop out at 60 games. Some teams drop out at 70. This is a team now that's going to know what it feels like to play a competitive schedule deep, deep, deep into March and into early April. So as Cassie was talking about the lessons uh, that Don Granada will mention for this team, that's what the Buffalo Sabres take into next season. One more thing, and I wanted to mention this earlier. I probably should have mentioned this after Maddie and I had our conversation uh, about the 1970s and how the NHL was probably at its weakest and most watered down. Um, I know Bobby Orr fans hate when I say that, but I'm going to big up Bobby Orr here in a second. So Stan Narodka, I love him. Stan's our lead researcher here at Sportsnet and Hockey Night in Canada. I've mentioned Stan before. Uh, He's our stats man, and we love him. So every time that I come into the shop on Saturdays, he hands me a different stat. Oh, you can use this Monday if you want. Oh, thanks, Stanley. So this is um, from Stan Narodka on Saturday. So most consecutive games with a shot on goal. Have you spent any time in your life considering who holds the record for most consecutive games with at least one shot on goal? Now, I hadn't until Stan mentioned this to me on Saturday. Bless you, Stan. So the current leader in the NHL is, surprise, surprise, Alex Ovechkin. So he's the active leader right now, 132 games consecutive with at least one shot on goal. Second place of all time is Ray Bork. Second with 360 consecutive games registering at least one shot on goal. Number one. Now here's the question. Is this a record that will never be broken? Number one. Most consecutive games with a shot on goal in the history of the NHL. This record started February 26th, 1969 and concluded November 1st, 1978. Come on down, number four, Bobby Orr, 501 straight games registering at least one shot on net. We talk about records that may never be broken. Is that one of them? Again, your current leader, Alex Ovechkin, 132, all-time, Bobby Orr, 501. Uh, We'll hit a break, come back with uh, Joe Smith from The Athletic, talk about a couple of things and a couple of teams, Minnesota Wild, and also, and that dogfight in the Central is a thing of beauty. Uh, And also we'll talk about John Cooper. He's got pieces on both uh, at his website, The Athletic. Well, he's one of the writers with The Athletic. Uh, Tampa and Minnesota up for grabs as the Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network simulcast on Sportsnet Now and Sportsnet 360. Keep it here. 
big guests and bigger opinions on everything happening in Leafsland. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. I want to thank Cassie Campbell-Pasco for stopping by. Don't forget tonight, Rogers Monday Night Hockey with the debut of the Yandel Watch in the pregame. Uh, that gets underway at 6.30 Eastern. Puck drops between the Ottawa Senators and the Florida Panthers, Buffalo Sabres, and Montreal Canadiens at 7. Uh, in the meantime, don't look now, but there is an outstanding race right now for top spot in the the, uh, the NHL Central Division. That spot is currently occupied, top spot anyhow, by the Minnesota Wild. The Colorado Avalanche are a scant one point away, as are the Dallas Stars. However, if you look at things like, oh, the pesky winning percentage, uh, Colorado's on top right now, Minnesota's second, and Dallas still uh, in third. But nonetheless, uh, it is an intriguing race for positioning here, and I don't think anybody wants to see Colorado in the opening round. Uh, we'll bracket Minnesota for a second and open up by talking about the Tampa Bay Lightning and certainly their head coach, John Cooper, a wonderful piece written, really interesting. I mean, he's such a great writer. I can't, I can't help but not being a, a good piece. Uh, Joe Smith joins me right now from The Athletic. Joe, how are you today? Doing well. How about you? Uh, I'm doing good. I want, I want to hop on about, uh, about Minnesota here, one of my favorite teams to talk about it seems this season but before we get there uh, I read your piece on John Cooper this morning and I had forgotten about the we want to be the combination of the Oilers of the 80s and the Broad Street Bullies but (laughs) it is kind of the team in a lot of ways um, that's been constructed for and with the uh, the steadying hand of John Cooper first of all your piece on John Cooper is is excellent Um, do you have a, a theory or a reason why John Cooper in this era of coaches hired to be fired, etc., continues to endure as the bench boss of the Tampa Bay Lightning. We know there's been friction with players before, most notably Steven Stamkos, but why and how does John Cooper endure in Tampa? Well, thank you so much, first of all. But uh, I think there are a number of different reasons. I mean, number one, as Stamkos put it, you know, success leads to you sticking around, and it's hard to argue with the <laughs> the, the, track, the track record. Yeah. You know, like it keeps players around, keeps coaches around. You know, four Cup finals in the ten years and five conference finals, like that'll do it. Uh, keep you along a long time. But it's also something I think a lesson in partnership with the GM and, and ownership. Uh, I had the same assistant GM or GM for most of his time there in Tampa. Steve Eiserman passed the baton to Julian Breesbaugh, who actually mm-hmm. hired Cooper in Norfolk before he came to Lightning. Uh, head coach. And so having that relationship and that kind of trust with each other probably leads you to have probably more synergy and, and probably uh, more support too, like to go through some of the tough times, like in 2019 when they got swept by Columbus and Lightning fans were blowing up on Twitter saying, fire John Cooper. Um, just because it's a knee-jerk reaction when you get embarrassed and you lose after all these cup aspirations. So yeah. they stuck with it and, and Breezel said, why get a new John Cooper when I have the original? And so I think it's success. It's uh, it's the the, the mem- partnership with the ownership and management, and it's also just him evolving over time. You know, like letting you know the leadership group in the in the on the team led by Stephen Stamkos uh, have a lot of ownership in what they do, and and also you know let the kind of uh, giving his assistants more rope. Uh, you saw Derek Lalonde become the head coach of the Red Wings partly because of that. Yep. You know that's um that that Columbus loss is is so much part of Tampa Bay Lightning history, um, and you know we're going to be talking about that that four game sweep for years and years and years, and you know probably one of the um, one of the best moves that John Tortorella made was you know not making the goalie change after the first period i mean that really that decision to to not swap out goaltenders was huge for the columbus blue jackets when we all thought tortorella what are you doing um en route to the sweep and as you mentioned you know your your dms being full of of fire john cooper you know the draft that year was in vancouver and i remember on the floor even the days leading up to it there was all kinds of i'm sure you heard them too just wild rumors 
about what Tampa was going to do. And there was obviously, you know, the Cooper conversation. There was the, uh, you know, Kucherov for Dreisaitl. They're going to pull the trigger on this one. Blockbuster, all of it. Like there were wild things that were, were going around. Was there any that you can recall specifically? The, the kucherov Dreisaitl one was the one that I always have sticking in my head. But, you know, as you can recall, Cooper wasn't the only one whose, whose name was up for grabs. Now, they didn't end up doing anything, but, you know, Cooper's name was out there. Kucherov's name was out there. What were some of the things that you heard now that we're uh, a few years away from it? Yeah, like I, I think, you know, a lot of it was more on the outside noise versus the inside. I remember talking with Jeff Benick, the owner, and he said that Julian came over not too long after the sweep, and they had one of the usual end-of-the-year, you know, talks. Like, they're sitting on the couch in the living room just going over what happened and why, and, and they made it pretty clear, and Julian was pretty stubborn, we're not going to blow this thing up. We're not going to blow up our roster. We're not going to blow up our coaching staff. This is, this is not the end for this group. Because they're questioning the core. They're questioning Steven Stamkos in – the core players, can you win with this group? And they had won. They won the conference final and cup final 15. I like they hadn't won anything yep. not past the first round. So they, they had some track record of success, success here. So they didn't want to go through it. But I don't know if there was anything serious as far as like, you know, making that big of a, a move for Kucherov. But I do know that there were legit questions at time before they made this run, whether they could win with some of those guys as their best players. And you have to give credit to guys like Kucherov for, his transformation in his two-way game and his leadership and being the pillar for getting the puck deep in that 20-bubble run, they don't win the cup without that. But I also think it's fair to say, and if you ask John Cooper on your show sometime, I don't think they win those two cups if they didn't lose the way they did in Columbus the year before. You know what? That is so much of a sports um, earmark too, right? Like you look at the Oilers dynasty, which, you know, kind of in a lot of ways began by getting crushed by the New York Islanders. You look at, uh, I was just mentioning earlier on in the show, the New York Rangers uh, winning the Stanley Cup in, in 1994. That doesn't happen without the flame out in 1993 after the success of 1992. Like it has become such a staple. It's almost become sort of obvious that, you know, high expectations met with zero results. You know, the smartest thing you can do, uh, despite the howls from the fan base sometimes, is just do nothing. Is just leave it and say, you know what? Hockey sometimes is a little bit random. Let's just leave it and trust that we're on the right path here. Same thing with the mid-90s Red Wings. You know, Jimmy DeVolano got a lot of heat and people wondering if they could win with yep. Steve Eisenman as their, their captain. Uh, Barry Trotz, I talked to him for that Cooper story. And in, in Capitals, they're low with that core in Ovechkin for not getting it done. You know, he brought in a, uh, one of his buddies, uh, Trotstead, who would climb out Everest, but he failed the first two times. And he got the third time, and he talked to the team in that cup year about the kind of the randomness and the challenges and, and coming back for more. Um, so when Trotz told John Cooper at the 19 Awards in Vegas, hey, you're closer than you think, um, something yeah. to believe in, the light at the end of the tunnel. And when Pete DeVore came to that draft floor in 2019 at that draft, so hey, John Cooper, don't change. It's coming. Just don't change everything you do um, to react to one loss. It's wise. Um, let me ask you about the Minnesota Wild. Right now, it's a fascinating race on top, and it, it it very much feels to me, and maybe I'm projecting this, I don't know, but I'm curious your thoughts on it, that right now, if you're the Minnesota Wild or you're the Dallas Stars, what you're trying to do here is make sure you're not in a position to face off against Colorado in the opening round, true or false? I think I don't feel to say that publicly, but I think that's absolutely the case. I think it's <laughs> a race to first to win the division, which is important and it's and it's a, for pride and, and this winning division is great but it's also like hey like the west is wide open right now um there's you can make an argument for three or four teams that could go deep including the minnesota wild this year with their goaltending so but who who wants to face the defending cup champions that are just going to get healthier and hungrier and they know what it takes so i think that's you know clearly if if, if you're a minnesota wild fan or a dallas stars fan you're like hey let's get in first place and post the wild card team and then Maybe get them in round two or something. But, yeah, that's, you've seen many matchups over the years. That's Toronto Maple Leafs about getting a tough matchup in round one. Yeah, it's uh, it's true. Hey, for for you, what has been the um, what has been the big story with the Minnesota Wild this season? I know right now Kroll Kaprizov is, is, is injured, and that's that, that stings. But um, Philip Gustafson has been an incredible story. 
um, for the Minnesota Wild. Uh, Matthew Boldy, I'm a big fan of, hard not to be. But what's been the big story for you with Minnesota as they, you know, find themselves battling for top spot in the Central? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there are, like, there are multiple ones. But I think the biggest story for me has been the goaltending. Um, you saw what happened last year in the first round against the Blues, and they did the rotation with starting Mark J. Fleury and over Cam Talbot, and that obviously got through some criticism and some pushback afterwards, and it didn't work out. And uh, now they go into the year thinking Fleury would be the number one, and Gustafson kind of the backup as one of the early in his pro career. And all of a sudden Gustafson just took over the net and basically making a case to have the net. So that'll be a biggest question for me and for the wild going to the playoffs is who do you start in game one and how do you handle that? That many, how many goalie tandems these days go into the playoffs, switching goalies each game in the playoff series. So um, as wonderful as the season's been for the wild, that's the biggest question mark for me is who goes game one and, and when do you decide to change? How uh, how much do you think they take into consideration mean tweets from agents when they make their decision on the goaltender? <laughs> uh, agents or wives or education <laughs> last year. Um, that's that, right. That's that, right. Uh, Very good. That, that can't that can't be. Uh, I mean, beat writers. Uh, this is a pretty big one in Minnesota right now. Um, but yeah, I, I just think that knowing Bill Guerin and, and Dean Evison, I think they're gonna not going to listen to all that. They're just pretty um, straightforward and like pretty bullish in their beliefs. And so um, I could make a case for both goalies start game one, Marc-Andre Fleury with the three cups, uh, Gustafson with the, probably the better season. But, um, you know, it's obviously a good problem to have as opposed to having no goalies. And um, But that trade with for Cam Talbot and Gustafson might be one of the better trades the Wild have made in quite a long time. Yeah, what what's the fan base? I'm I'm always curious about how fan bases react to their team. Like I I'm a big like I like the Minnesota Wild. Like I like what Garen has constructed here. It's a combination of skill and toughness, um, and you know uh, it, it's 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 a team that's washable. Um, again, what is this fan base doing with this team right now? They are very engaged, very emotional, um, you know, obviously a very large fan base. I had a, had a really great one in Tampa I covered for a long time, but you can see that the in sheer numbers and volume um, in Minnesota, how much they follow this team. And I'll give you a quick story. I, I started here in Minnesota, and I covered the first three games, and they went 0-3, gave up 20 goals, um, got a bunch of tweets about they better not go Joe and 4 you know, people joking about getting you plane tickets out back to Tampa. You know, um, just jokingly, <laughs> I thought I just got there. I just moved in. I barely had a place yet. Um, and my first column was there's a goalie crisis brewing in, in Minnesota, which shows kind of how wrong you can be sometimes um, after an early start. But um, but they're, they're absolutely a passionate fan base. The high school state hockey tournament sold out Excel Energy Center, 19,000 fans going middle of the week all, every night to watch the high school state tournament. So uh, I can only imagine what would happen if they went around and go on a run here. It'll be the whole entire state will pretty much explode for, for hockey here. Well, that is, um, that is one of the things that I wonder about, like what constitutes a successful season for the Minnesota wild? Um, Does it have to be a, a first round win um, does it need to be more than that? Like we all know, you know, the deeper hole that this team is going in um, for their salary cap. But what constitutes, in your estimation, Joe, a successful season for the Minnesota Wild? Well, I think if Kirill Kaprizov indeed comes back right before the playoffs and is available for round one, and they're full strength, I do think a successful season would at least be at least winning a round in the playoffs after the last number of years of, of that heartbreak, knowing what they're building and brewing in Minnesota and knowing how much money they'll have in cap with on this young core to spend in the next year or two, they didn't expect to win a cup this year. And, and Bill Guerin probably tell you, they're not, they didn't feel like they were a cup contender at the trade deadline. Um, it may move to add to this group, yeah. but I think successful season, successful season would be winning a first round, knowing they could maybe do more. But if they get Colorado and they go to seven games and they lose, is that a, is that not a successful season? Is that a huge disappointment? Yeah. Like that's where the context I think matters. But I think considering how well they've done in this record streak and fourteen one and four, I think 
if Carroll's back and healthy and full of strength, and they, you know, I think people will probably expect and hope that they can win at least one round. And then in this wide open West, who, who knows? We shall see. Um, Joe, you do such great work. Love the Cooper piece. Continued success with the uh, covering the Minnesota Wild and uh, and this exciting race uh, in the Central right now. Who's going to end up top dog and avoid the Colorado Avalanche? Uh, maybe ending all of it is just if Colorado wins and then we see Dallas and, and Minnesota face off in what uh, we might tongue-in-cheek refer to as the Norm Green Cup. I know people in Minnesota hate it when I say <laughs> things like that, but there it is. Uh, Joe, thanks as always for stopping by. I really appreciate it, pal. Thanks so much for having me. Good talking to you, and we'll do it again soon. Thanks again. I hope so. I certainly hope so. Joe Smith uh, from The Athletic uh, covers the Minnesota Wild, a uh, longtime uh, beat reporter covering the Tampa Bay Lightning, and a real nice and interesting piece on uh, on John Cooper and, you know, how he endures. And I get that winning is one thing, and that's true, but it's not as if, you know, winning teams haven't made coaching changes along the way. Uh, not as if, you know, successful teams haven't, you know, said goodbye to uh, to coaches. Well, we think about, you know, a team like the Washington Capitals, for example, uh, with with uh, with Barry Trotz once upon a time uh, of most recent notes. So, I mean, it does happen, but there is an endurance that has occurred here between John Cooper and the Tampa Bay Lightning. And I think that one of the... Um, you know, one of the, the main ingredients in the Tampa Bay Lightning secret sauce is, and it doesn't get you a lot of friends, but it really helps to make a successful organization. When we think of ruthless general managers, like we talk a lot about a team like the Vegas Golden Knights, and we refer to it as the ruthless pursuit of the Stanley Cup. Do anything, you know, crush relationships, step all over feelings, doesn't matter, bodies strewn all over the stage, curtain, I am king, all of that. Like that's Vegas, folks. But you know who that also is? That's Tampa. That's Tampa, and that is Julian Brisebois. And that organization has a, we will not listen to criticism. We have our direction and we cannot be loyal to everybody and certain players. And there are tough decisions, whether it's Ryan McDonough, whether it's Andre Palat, whether it's players previous, whether it's Tyler Johnson, I know that was Iserman, but there are, there are other players that have had to go and there's not a whole massaging of feelings and trying to make it work and compromises here. You know, it is helpful, I would imagine, when, you ha- when you're a coach and you have a general manager who also has a ruthless pursuit of the Stanley Cup and doesn't worry about things like, I don't know, feelings <laughs> or being nice to people. Just wants to win. As a head coach, that helps, and that's why the battery of John Cooper and Julian Brisebois seems to be working very well. And again, don't be surprised if at the end of all this, they're the ones with the big cup at the end, and the boat parties, and the videos, and the topless Kucherovs, and the clips, and the jokes. Don't be surprised. Thanks to Joe Smith for stopping by. Thanks to Cassie Campbell-Pascal. Thanks to Darren McCarty. That was fun. And uh, thanks to Elliot Friedman for kicking it off. Uh, Our camera operator, the great Jen Rolnick. uh, Technical operator, Lance Kennedy. Our producer, Matt Marchese. Enjoy Rogers Monday Night Hockey this evening. Merrick Show returns tomorrow, noon Eastern, 9 Pacific. Have a great rest of your day.